The following message is from God's Word, taught during a time of corporate worship at Bridge Baptist Church. If you would like more information, feel free to contact us or look us up on the web at www.bridgebaptistchurch.com. We want to thank you for joining us during this time of study from God's Word. Take a moment in prayer now and ask God to open your mind and prepare your heart to hear His Word. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, and while you're flipping there, find your way also to Romans. Uh, there's two verses I'd like to look at in Romans. Romans 3, chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. Sermon on the Mount. As is our custom, we will read through the passage. We're going to read all the way through verse 11. We have eight Beatitudes here. The last one, verse 11, verses 11 and 12, are uh, sort of an extension, or I, I should say an expansion upon the last one. We're going to go ahead and read through all of them, beginning here in verse 2, and uh, then we will pray, and then we will get to, get to work focusing in on, on verse 6. So let's pick it up, Matthew chapter 5, verse 2. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we love you and all that we have, all that we could ever possibly possess in this life. It's all from your hand. And all that we are and all, all those around us and the relationships we have and the friendships we have and the joy of of having little ones and the joy of having mothers and fathers, God, all of this, all of this is from your hand. It's from you. And we just thank you for that, God. Father, my prayer this morning is that we would come to understand that our righteousness is also completely and totally from you. And then, Father, that we can rest in what you accomplished for us on the cross. Lord, I know that there are many who think of Christianity as sort of a quid pro quo kind of thing where you give to us and you scratch our back and we have to scratch your back. And I just pray, Lord, that you would drive that deception far from our minds this morning and teach us, Lord, what it means to have everything in you, from you, for your glory, God. We love you, Lord, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. At a coffee bar, there's a Baptist, a Jew, and a Muslim. You're thinking I'm starting out with a joke, but this really happened. About three and a half years ago up at TRU, we, we do a coffee ministry uh, there at the, the, re, the res there at McGill Dorms, and one night I was blessed. I was there with Kyla, and um, I was blessed with her. We were doing this coffee ministry thing, and, and we actually were able to sit in a roundtable type of discussion with a Muslim and a Jew and an atheist. There was also an atheist there as well. And um, the question came up, you know, what in your life is absolute? In other words, the concrete bedrock 
you don't ever shake this sort of thing. And different people threw out different ideas, you know. Um, but the one thing that was really, really interesting was that in this diverse group of people, Jew, Christian, Muslim, atheist, the only one at the table really that was really being a stick in the mud was, was, was me and, and Tyler. But between the Jew and the Muslim and the atheist, they all agreed. You can't force your morality on someone else. You can't tell somebody else what's right and what's wrong. Everybody has to sort of figure that out for themselves. I mean, who are you to say what is the right thing to do and what is the wrong thing to do? And so I like to play devil's advocate. I say, let me ask you a question. When, because these are all university students. They're all familiar with the concept of staying up all night long, studying, writing papers, taking tests the next day. Let me ask you a question. When you come to take your math exam, is there a right answer? Is there? Or is it all just relative, like what you believe is just as good as what the teacher suggests? Have you ever attempted to take a math exam with the philosophy you've just espoused? What about biology? You're studying the interactions of chemicals and different nerve cells and, you know, different animal classes. Is it possible that it can just be whatever you want it to be? Or is it true that on some level things are just the way they are? It's like, yeah, that's true. You know, math is legit and science is legit and these things have underlying undergirding principles that you just can't deny, but when it comes to morality, when it comes to ethics, we're a whole different creature, because really, we all just have different ideas on what's right and what's wrong. I say, okay, let's take this a different direction. Is what Hitler did right or wrong? And all three of them, to a man, agree. Hitler was wrong. Why? Says who? Well, it's just wrong to kill people. Why? Well, because, you know, you should love people and, and care about people. You shouldn't just herd them all up into cattle cars and truck them halfway around Europe and then dispose of them in concentration camps. That's just completely wrong. Why? Now, they're all students of evolutionary theory. So was Hitler. I mean, if it is true that morality is just sort of this kind of weird unusual evolved trait that doesn't really work well within the Darwinian system of survival of the fittest, and as a result, we shouldn't try to push our morality on each other. If that's true, and it is survival of the fittest, then wouldn't Hitler be our hero? I mean, eugenics, all this sort of thing, genetic manipulation, the Aryan race, go blonde hair, blue-eyed German boy, go, 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 uh, isn't this really what he was all about, trying to, you know, exalt his own species and his own sort of genetic system? Well, yeah, but you can't just go killing people. Why? Why? And all of them, is interesting in this discussion, we didn't really get the opportunity to really lead anybody to Jesus through this process, but um, in the midst of all of this discussion, each one of them came to a point to where they said, we have a morality that is universal, but we shouldn't necessarily pursue that to what we think are its logical conclusions, per se. We should just stop short with a basic sort of morality. 
Now, this last summer, I was reading a book by, a name, by, by an author named Annie Dillard. She basically was fed up with life and decided she wanted to go back out to the woods and get in touch with her pre-evolved self, so to speak. And so she was living in this creek in Virginia and, you know, communing with the animals and all of this sort of thing. And um, she came back and she said, there's something freakishly wrong about us as people. She said, in nature, what I observed was that all animals are extremely violent to each other. They're all extremely violent. They don't feel sorry for themselves, and they don't have any compunctions about eating each other or killing each other for food. And even within the insect realms, you have insects eating others of their own kind, their own species. And she made the statement. She said, you know, you may object that right and wrong is a human concept, to which I reply precisely. She said, we are moral creatures living in an amoral world. Or consider the alternative. It is only human feeling that is freakishly amiss. All right then. It is our emotions that are amiss. Let's just acknowledge it. Our emotions, our, our sense of right and wrong, these are all wrong. Okay? We are freaks. The world is fine. And let us all go and have lobotomies to restore us to our natural state. We can leave lobotomized go back to the creek and live on its banks as untroubled, happy, and carefree as any muskrat or reed. All that is necessary is a lobotomy. You first. Now that's an interesting perspective, and this woman is a full-blown atheist and believes in evolutionary theory. The thing that's freakishly wrong with us, in her words, from an atheistic evolutionary perspective, is that we have this sense of right and wrong, this sort of moral law, this code written on our hearts, given to us. And if you accept the theory of evolution, this thing really doesn't make any sense. And really, if you want to go on to the next level, you really just need to do away with all of your emotions, things like remorse and guilt and stuff like that. Well, that can be solved. Just kill all emotion altogether. Just sever that front part of your, your brain there, the frontal lobe, and you can be evolved. Now, who's ready to sign up for that? Because when you lose all guilt and all remorse and all of these sort of moral compunctions of right and wrong, you also lose a lot of happiness. Things like love, friendships, mom, caring about moms on Mother's Day. You lose all those sorts of things. And so, although all atheists would agree that it's this sense of right and wrong that's killing us, None of them really want to take that to its next step. Nobody really says, hey, let's go ahead and have a lobotomy. But what's worse is, even though we're hanging on to these emotions, these emotions are driving us to despair. In countries where atheism has been exalted by rule of law and at the tip of a gun, countries like Lithuania and Russia, you'll notice that these countries have the highest suicide rate per capita in the world. Russia's number one, Lithuania's number two. China was in the top three, but the church is making tremendous inroads there, and that trend has begun to reverse. At the end of it all, if there is no morality, if there is no right and wrong, if there is no higher purpose to life, then there's really no purpose to life at all. Which means we could conclude Sad are those who reject all righteousness. Sad are those who deny 
all morality. That seems to be the outworking of all of our efforts to push God and faith and right and wrong out of our lives. On our own, with our clever theories, we're sad. And Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, happy or blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So what does this mean, to hunger and thirst for righteousness? It's in a present active participle, which means that these are people who go on hungering and thirsting. It's a continuous sort of hungering and thirsting. Have you ever been really hungry or thirsty? Some of you may say, yes, I've been hungry. There have been times in which I've been thirsty. But I don't think you really know what I'm getting at here. For us, hunger is, okay, it's about 10 o'clock. You know, breakfast was two hours ago. Uh, my tummy's starting to rumble a little bit. I've got to wait until 1230 before I can have lunch. Okay, I'll have a breath mint between now and then. That'll hold me over, right? That's our idea of hunger. It's really, in a country like Canada, that's as affluent as Canada is, we don't really know hunger per se. We don't really experience thirst per se. We're not really familiar, really truly familiar with the type of hungering and the type of thirsting that Jesus is talking about here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. He's talking about an intense hungering, an intense thirst. You're driven by it. You're needing something to eat. You're needing something to drink. There's a, an account written uh, uh, by a couple of British and Allied soldiers who were taking over, they were reclaiming Palestine during World War I. And the account is that it, this combined force of British and Australian and New Zealand soldiers, they're pressing across what is, at that point in time, Palestine. They're trying to fight out the Turks to reclaim Palestine. And as they're fighting along the desert, they outpaced their water supply, their camel caravan carrying water. They kind of got too far ahead of them. And they're going from Beersheba over to Sharia Wells. And they get along and they realize we're closer to Sharia Wells at this point than we are to our camel train. And they're thirsty. The description is basically the, the guy that's writing this account says, when our water ran out, our mouths got dry, our heads ached, the sun beat down mercilessly, our joints became sore, and then we became dizzy and began to faint. Eyes became bloodshot, lips swelled and turned purple, our tongues became thick in our mouths, mirages became common, and we eventually became delirious. They're pressing along. They come to the, to the Sharia wells, which is currently being held by the, Turk, the Turkish army, and they say, okay, we're fighting literally for a drink of water. They know here in this town, Sharia wells, there's a, a pool of water. They can go there. They can get their thirst quenched. And he says, that day we fought as wild men fight, fighting for our very lives. As the water was distributed from the great stone cisterns, there was a system of order put in place. All of the Allied soldiers had to file up in perfect formation, and there was a, an order in which the water was distributed. First, the, uh, the sick and the wounded were given water to drink, then those who would stand guard duty were given water to drink, and then the regular companies were issued water. They stood for four hours at full attention in blinding sunlight, no more than 30 feet away from the water. It took four full hours before every man had a drink. They stood there, literally, they could see it, they could smell it in the air. Their, thung, their tongues are thick in their mouth. Their lips are swelling. They're just kind of almost fainting with the heat. 
And then the guy that's writing this account makes this observation. As we stood waiting and waiting and waiting, I believe that every man in that company learned their first real Bible lesson that day on the march from Beersheba to Sharia Wells. If such were our thirst for God, if such were our thirst for righteousness and for his will in our lives, a consuming, all-embracing, preoccupying desire that drove our thoughts mad and wild with desire, then how rich in the fruit of the Spirit should we be? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Uh, just consider your life for a second. The type of hungering we're talking about here is not the kind of, oh, I need to eat a breath mint to hold me over till lunch hunger. The type of hungering and thirsting we're talking about here is an all-consuming, driving, passionate, I must have righteousness. That's the kind of thirsting we're talking about. That's the kind of desire we're looking for. That's what Jesus is calling for here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. He says, blessed are those who hunger, who have a passionate, longing desire for righteousness. Now, how do you have that passionate desire? Where does that desire come from? Any of you, if you look at your life, you know. Maybe you're a good person. It's not like you're Hitler or anything. But you know you've done wrong. Have you ever had one of those events where you've done something and you've regretted it and you felt guilt over it and it kind of occupied your thoughts for a while? You're like, man, why did I do that? I've been there. It's one of those things that you just, you can kind of forget about it over time, but there are moments, random weird times in the day in which you're going along and you'll see somebody or even just totally unconnected events. You're looking in the mirror, combing your hair or something. All of a sudden, the thought just comes back to you with a flood and it totally captivates you. And you think to yourself, why did I do that? Now, if you've never had that experience, then you should be concerned right now. There's probably not as strong as a hunger or a thirst in your life for righteousness as there ought to be. If there have never been moments in which you've regretted doing something some way, a, a certain way, a sinful way, and there's never been moments in which you've regretted saying that particular phrase to that person, there have never been moments in which you've regretted hurting your friend this way, or rebelling against your mom, since it is Mother's Day, I'll say that all day. You have to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, the Beatitudes, I want to draw this, I want to draw this out for you here. We've got eight, and then the last is an expansion on the eighth one. The last phrase there from verses 11 to 12 is an expansion on verse 10, which is the eighth beatitude. In verse 2, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So first off, the reward is the kingdom of heaven. You look at verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Look at this, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So you've got kingdom of heaven at the beginning, and you've got kingdom of heaven at the end. So it forms sort of like bookends, okay? And these bookends encapsulate everything in between. Now, another interesting phrase here. If you look at verse 6, this is beatitude number 4. Beatitude number 4 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Okay? Righteousness. Now go to the very last beatitude. Verse, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. 
So the first beatitude talks about receiving the kingdom. The last beatitude talks about receiving the kingdom. The middle beatitude, beatitude number four, talks about righteousness. The last beatitude talks about righteousness. Now, Jesus is saying something. There is a logical order here. And we'll draw it all out, draw all of the implications of that when we get to the last one here. But the first four beatitudes are all outward looking, looking away from yourself. Blessed are those who realize that they are beggars spiritually before God. Blessed are those who mourn the true source of all sorrow, the fact that God is no longer in our lives. Blessed are those who are meek, who have a quality of wisdom. They're able to understand what it is God is trying to say to them. And then we come here, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. If the first three Beatitudes have all been outward looking, that we cannot do anything before God, we are beggars before God, we can't do anything but mourn the fact that he's not in our lives anymore, we can't do anything except meekly, humbly receive the truth of just how wretched we are without God in our lives, then it should follow logically that we would hunger and thirst for righteousness. If we're beggars, if we're sad, and if we're wise, we should be thirsty for righteousness. How do we get that righteousness? How can we get a drink of righteousness? I want you to flip over with me. I want you to go to Romans chapter 3, verse 21. In Romans 3, 21, it says, But now the righteousness, and, and if you don't have your Bible with, me, with you this morning, it's going to be up on the screens behind us. It says, The righteousness of God. Just stop right there. Romans 3, 21, the righteousness of God. What do we know about God? Well, if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks now, you know God is holy, He is sovereign. He is pure. He is above all. He is over all. He is God. He is infinite. There is a quality, there, there is a character about God in which all the attributes he has, he, does just, he doesn't possess them in some measure. He possesses these qualities, these attributes infinitely. So if God is holy, he's not just holy, he's infinitely holy. If God is righteous, he's not just kind of righteous. He's not just kind of a good guy. He is infinitely righteous. So what Paul is saying here in Romans 3.21 the righteousness of God, God's righteousness. It's the righteousness that he has, which if he has righteousness, and Paul clearly says that he does, we're talking about an infinitely holy type of righteousness. And he says here, the righteousness of God, look at this, has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Verse 22, he repeats it. Anytime he repeats something, he's drawing your attention to it. Okay, the righteousness of God, now look at this, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Let me put that back together. Go back to verse 21. The righteousness of God has been made known, has been manifested. That's what the text says. It's been manifested through, now jump over to verse 22. He kind of has a, an, a side there where he talks about the law and the prophets. So just kind of cut that out of, out of the way for a second just to get right to the heart of what he's saying, okay? The righteousness of God, the infinite, holy righteousness of God is through, look at verse 22, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. 
Now, Paul is engaged in a polemic here in which he's trying to draw a distinction between Jews who want to try to honor the law, who want to try to keep the law, and through the process of keeping the law, it's kind of become a quid pro quo for the Jewish people. They think that if they're righteous, if they're holy, if they do enough good things, then God will bless them, God will save them. And so Paul is engaging in this polemic, and and we don't really have time to jump into Romans chapter 3 to really show you it, but he's really arguing against this concept that you can really do anything ever, even if you do keep the law, as best as you're able, and we all know that no one is ever truly able to keep the law, but even if you were, you can't do it. There is no righteousness apart from faith in Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. And then he, he even makes a statement here, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So we see here that in this polemical argument, Paul's arguing for a righteousness that is not contingent upon what you do, which makes perfect sense in the Beatitudes. As Jesus is preaching along, we're all beggars. There's nothing you can bring to God. There's nothing you can give to God that he didn't first give to you. It's like my daughter. The other day, she, she's wanting to do something nice for me, so she comes and she says, here's baby KK, Daddy. I'm like, oh, thank you. I appreciate that. She's like, you can hold her for a while. This is her way of saying, you know, I love you and I want to do something nice for you. I bought baby KK for Chloe like two years ago, okay? <laughs> like that's, technically I paid and bought for that thing, all right? Now, so does Chloe really have anything in her, in her possession that she can give to me that I didn't already give to her? No, right? Like everything she has, the food on the table, the roof over her head, everything. It's, it's me, Shanti and I have provided this, okay? She comes as a beggar, having nothing of her own, not realizing, really, she's a beggar at this point, you know, just, you know, trying to express her love, right? Just trying to give her father some way of showing me that she loves me, right? This is exactly what Jesus is saying in the Beatitudes. It's exactly what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 3. The righteousness of God, infinite righteousness, infinite holiness, all that you would need to be accepted in his eyes, all of it is through faith in Jesus. All of it is through Christ. And then he goes on with the polemic. There is no distinction. All, and he's talking about um, between Jew and Gentile. In other words, Jews aren't any extra special holy than the Gentiles who don't have the law. There's no difference between them. Everyone, Jew and Gentile, people who keep the law and people who don't even have the law. It doesn't matter. Everyone, there is no distinction. Everyone has sinned. Verse 23, you've all sinned. You've all fallen short of the glory of God. None of us in this room, no matter how good we are, no matter how hard we try, no matter how much effort we expend, there is nothing anybody in this room could ever do, ever, that could ever make you right with God ever just drive that nail home you cannot earn righteousness with god you never could he says all have sinned all of us and fallen short of the glory of god look at verse 24 we are justified by his grace as a gift the exact same way that i give my daughter baby kk it's a gift and the gift that we have from God the Father is redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then it, in case you missed it, he's going to emphasize it again. You receive this by faith, right? And so he's going on. 
of redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Look at this. To be received by faith. So God is holding forth righteousness, infinite, holy righteousness, all the righteousness you could ever possibly want. He is holding it forth for you in Jesus Christ. That's great. How do I get a drink of that righteousness? How can I possibly just take a sip? How could I quench the longing of my soul to have righteousness before God by? Trust in Jesus Christ. The text is clear. To be received by faith. He goes on. He says, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins and it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. When you turn to God and you acknowledge that you're a beggar, that you've got nothing, that there is nothing you can bring to the table, when you mourn the loss of his presence in your life, when you realize this whole world is messed up and there's no fixing it, and the reason it's messed up is because of your sin, and that sin has got, driven God away from us, and you just want him back. You just would like to see him back in your life. And you realize that that means you have to agree with God, that you're the cause of it. You're meek. That wisdom of meekness comes to you. You begin to exhibit faith. You trust in God. To receive the righteousness of Christ isn't, well, I'm a pretty good guy, and, and uh, you know what? Yeah, all right, I'll throw Jesus into the mix. That's not, not really agreeing with God. That's not really trusting God. To agree with God means that you believe his word over your own opinion. And guess what his word says? His word says you can't do anything to earn your way with him. So when you begin to agree with that, you begin to exercise trust. You begin to exercise faith. And then he says, you just trust what I did for you on the cross. I tell you now, I give you my righteousness. Now, what righteousness do you need if you've got God's infinite righteousness? You don't need any, any kind of righteousness. You can completely trust and rest in the righteousness that he gives you. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew, who knew no sin, that in him, now look at the transition here. A lot of people look at it and say, okay, so God just kind of, you know, acknowledges that we have some righteousness when we trust in Jesus. No, no, no. There's a union that takes place. When you begin to trust in Jesus, it says you might become the righteousness of God. You become the righteousness of God when you place your faith in Jesus. He gives it to you. He bestows it upon you. Meaning, when he looks at Josh Claycamp, he doesn't see all the bad things I've done. And a lot of people, they look at it and they say, yeah, 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 that's right. Jesus Christ wipes our slate clean. No. No, he doesn't. You've missed the point. He doesn't just wipe your slate clean. When God looks at you, when you trust in Jesus, when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. It's not that you've been in the hole, you've been negative, and you've come up to zero. It's that you were in the hole, you were negative, and now you are infinitely righteous in God's eyes. Meaning he has to favor you. He has to save you. You have to go to heaven. There is not only nothing you bring to the table, 
but there's nothing you need to bring to the table after you trust in him. You're not just up to par. You are, in God's eyes, infinitely righteous when you place your faith, when you trust in Jesus. You cannot add to your salvation. You cannot take away from your salvation. And if you have ever, ever lived what I call a taxpayer kind of Christianity, then you have never known Jesus Christ. You say, okay, that was kind of an interesting phrase you threw out there. What do you mean by that? A taxpayer Christianity. You pay taxes, and because you're a taxpayer, the government owes you certain rights. And a lot of people live the Christian life that way. Because I go to church, because I tithe, because I'm faithful in Bible study, because I do all of these things, God has to bless me. God will have to save me someday. That is a taxpayer kind of mentality. And that is not even remotely the case here. You're beggars. You couldn't pay taxes even if you wanted to. There is nothing you can add. So if taxpayer Christianity, if that's false, then all it is, basically, we just trust in Jesus and then we're saved, right? Exactly. So, I trust in Jesus. I come down. I say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I get baptized, maybe. Maybe I don't if I feel like it. And then I'm saved. And I'll see you later. You'll never see me again. I'm done. Right? End of story, end of discussion, right? No. Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5 are not blessed are those who want to make a one-time exchange. Like I said, it's in the present active participle. Blessed are those who hunger, who are hungering, who are thirsting, who are longing for the righteousness of God. If you think for one second that you can come down here and pray a prayer and seal the deal and then walk away and never ever have a hunger or a longing in your life for God, then that prayer was never valid. That prayer that you prayed in which you said, yeah, God, I'm just going to make a one-time deal with you this morning and, and, uh, and then after this, I'm, I'm out. I'll see you when I die. That's not the righteousness that Jesus is talking about. And furthermore, you are not entitled to the blessedness that he references in Matthew chapter 5 if there is not an hungering and a thirsting for God in your life. See, it's the difference between taxpayer Christianity, taxpayer religion, versus a love relationship. And for a person who says this Christianity thing is just so easy, you just go down and you just say a sinner's prayer and you do your deal and then you're done. For a person who can say that, they've never really understood what it means to have a relationship with God. It is not a system of taxpayer Christianity. It is all based upon a personal relationship with your Lord and King. It's kind of like if I, I'm dating Shanti and, and we're dating in high school and you know we go out on dates and at some point in time I manage to convince her that I'm the man of her dreams and I say, will you marry me? And she says, yes, I'll marry you. And then I say, okay, well, that's, uh, that's awesome. Now I can do whatever I want. <laughs> I mean, there are people who look at marriage that way. But the truth is, a real relationship with, with my wife, a love relationship, when you love a person, 
want to do what makes us happy. We want to bless folks. We care about folks. True Christianity too often is portrayed as it's just an, like an attack poster for us. And the truth is, you're saved when you love Jesus. You hunger and you thirst for him. When I married Shanti, I didn't think, oh, okay, you know, now I can just do whatever I want. I've got somebody who can cook for me, who can clean for me, who can do my laundry. And a lot of people look at marriage that way. Uh, does Shanti do those things for me? Yes, she does. And I, I love her for it. But when I entered into that relationship with my wife and quit to just go, it was because I cared about her. My heart was bound up in her happiness. I wanted to bless her and I wanted to be with her because she makes me happy. Does God make you happy? There's an edge to grace, church. There's an edge to it. A lot of people who don't understand what it means to be a Christian say, okay, pray a little prayer, you do a little dance, and then you're in. But no, grace has an edge to it. There's a lady, a lady from Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York who, who got saved, and she understood from the outset that she didn't have to work to earn her salvation, but now that she was saved, there was an awful lot that she felt she should do for the one she loved. She said, if I was ever saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer, right? In other words, what she's saying is, if I could actually earn my place in God's kingdom, then there would only be so much I would have to do until I earned it. I would have done my duty, and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if the opposite is true, if I am a sinner saved by grace, then there is nothing that my king can't ask of me. That's the dynamic of grace. There is nothing that my wife can't ask of me. Now, I'm limited in terms of what I can supply, right? But our relationship is not like, okay, you do this, I do that, and then we go to our own separate places. And it doesn't work like that in real relationships. I love her. She loves me. She does things for me. We work together. I try to bring her happiness. There is nothing that we can't discuss with each other, and there's nothing that we can't ask of each other. And there is nothing that we don't want to do for each other. To hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God means that you not only want his righteousness in your life, but you value the things that he values. And guess what he values? He values you. And he also values all the people around you. And he values all the people around the world. Which means if you value him and you value the things he values, you will value all of the people around the world. And if you are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, you want that righteousness in your life, but you also want to see that righteousness in the lives of everyone. Everyone. Grace is free.
city sit in that regard. Your king, his love drives him to reach the whole world, which means if you love your king, you will be able to reach the whole world as well. Last verse I wanted to share this with you. Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you've ever gotten a taste of righteousness in your life, just tasted how sweet it was, how good it was, you want that for other people. Church, do you want righteousness for other people? Are you hungering and thirsting for righteousness in your own life? Where are you at in your salvation? Let's bow for prayer. God, we love you. And we just thank you so much, Lord, for this time together. Father, we thank you that you paid it all on the cross, that you gave us all of your righteousness. And Father, I pray that you would take away from our minds this morning the deception that there is anything we could do to ever earn favor with you. But Lord, also drive far from our mind the deception that we can have you in our lives without hungering and thirsting for you. God, I pray that if there are any here this morning who do not know you, who have never repented of their sins and trusted in you and only you, exclusively you, for all of their righteousness. I pray, God, that you would drive that truth home to them this morning through your spirit. I pray that you would open their minds and their hearts to understand, and I pray, God, that you would draw them into a true, trusting relationship with you, God. We want to see your kingdom come on this earth, God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. We hope that you've been challenged and encouraged by God during our time together in the scriptures. While it is our purpose to provide sound biblical teaching to all who are interested, our prayer is that you would be involved in a local church of your own, because true spiritual growth cannot occur apart from the fellowship of the church. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to seeing you next time at Bridge Baptist Church.